Hallelujah. Aren't you glad His love never fails? His love, his love never gives up? Like I said earlier, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what we need, God is there, knows exactly what we need before we even ask Him for it. You know, there were times in my life where I thought He was a million miles away. He was there the whole time. Oh yeah, it was me that walked away different times in my life. But He stayed right where He should be, right beside me the whole time. And sometimes it's not until after you get through something you look back and say, wow, God, you were there the whole time. Uh, how many times has that happened to you? Probably every one of us have had that happen in our lives. Uh, this morning, I welcome you here. If you're a first-time visitor, we are so thankful that you're with us this morning. We're in a sermon series, uh, but I want to start this out by asking you how many have ever seen that show, Hoarders? Anybody ever see that show? Yeah, where these people have some sort of disorder, where they stockpile things and they uh, um, stockpile or hoard things, all sorts of things. I mean, things like piles of clothes, gadgets, antiques, furniture, trash, newspapers, um, even animals. I saw this one episode of Hoarders where this guy had lost his wife, and he thought for company he'd buy himself a, a pair of pet rats. Well, to keep him company, well, his pet rats had babies. Their babies had babies. Their babies had babies. They all had babies, and before long, they had over 5,000 rats running around in that house chewing apart his entire house. And a lot of these people actually have built walls within their homes of nothing but clutter where they only have these little aisleways to walk from room to room. Well, with that said, years ago I had a construction business, and we'd have leftover siding, soffit, windows and doors, old sinks, old cabinets, trim, whatever. And I had several rental properties at the time, so I had this big idea that whenever I did a remodel project, I would save what was worth saving, any of the good stuff, and use that in my rental properties. Yeah, Slumlord 101, amen. <laughs> but slowly, I realized my saving stuff was getting out of control. And I realized how bad it was when I decided, or we decided to sell our rental properties. I had to get rid of all of that stuff. It took me weeks to dig through and sort through uh, all of that stuff. And then you know what I had to do with all of my precious treasures? I had to buy a roll-off or a rent a roll-off dumpster to throw them all away. They were real treasures. But while I was cleaning through all of that clutter, all of that stuff, I found things that I didn't even realize that I had. Today we're still in our sermon series called Asking for a Friend, where we're covering some uh, of the questions we have in our faith walk, and we've been using the Bible to uh, find the answers to those questions. But today we're going to ask the question, can we really trust the Bible? Can we really trust the Bible? Is it trustworthy? Today, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 22. If you don't, we'll have the, uh, the uh, uh, scriptures up on the screen. But I believe we're going to focus in on a people that were, you might consider them hoarders, they had accumulated and acquired so much stuff that they had even lost their Bible. In the time frame of this whole text, uh, the Bible was only the five books of Moses back then. It was the Pentateuch uh, from Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. So it was only those uh, five books. Um, and because of a long line of evil kings, the book of God's law, the Bible, had gotten lost. And in of all places, it got lost in the temple. It got lost in the temple under a mountain of clutter, a mountain of corruption, a mountain of idol worship, a mountain of 
all sorts of things that shouldn't be in the temple, statues, idols, altars. So when Josiah, this new king, becomes king by God's order, he's called to restore the temple, to repair it, to remodel it, and then send some guys in to clean up the mess. I want you to visualize these guys going in and cleaning up the mess in the temple, 200, and 200, 200 to 250 years worth of mess in a place the size of the temple. And imagine it's around 630 B.C., and all these priests and all these kings over the centuries or generations had brought in all of their relics, and they landed in the temple. So there was a mountain of stuff that had been collected for over 200 years, New King Josiah comes on the scene, and one of the first orders of business for him is to clean up the temple, so they get started. And let me just say this up front. This is one of those weird little stories in the Bible that if you're not careful, you'll just read through it and think, huh, I don't even know why that was in there, and you'll just keep moving on to the next chapter. Well, I believe with all of my heart, there's some big stuff in here that God wants us to hear and see this morning. 2 Kings chapter 22, starting with verse 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. I'm thinking, say what? Eight years old. This little guy with so much position and so much power, and he's only eight years old. When I think about my son Austin, when he was eight years old, I am thankful he wasn't king. Amen? <laughs> you probably are too with your eight-year-old. But I remember on his schoolwork one day, he brought it home, and he had wished that he could ground his mom and me forever, for life. I'm just thinking Josiah is eight years old and he takes on the responsibility of being king. Josiah's father had actually been assassinated for being a, a wicked, evil king. And the people wanted the, a king from the line of David to precede him. So they elected this uh, um, young boy, eight years old, Josiah, to be king. Look what it says. It says, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Boscath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. When you hear that, as a parent, you're probably thinking, wow, I wish my eight-year-old was that in love with God. I wish my eight-year-old uh, served God like that. Um, so uh, it's saying that he didn't just serve him that way when he was eight years old. It says, if, if I read it right, he served him for the full 31 years of his kingship like that. His father gets assassinated, and he gets appointed to be king, to take up his kingship. Verse 3, in the 18th year of, the, of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azalea, and son of Meshullam, to the temple of the Lord, and he said, I'll stop there because in the next five verses, he basically says, we've got to clean this mess up. We've got to clean this temple up. Take all the money that's been given at the temple doors, give it to the guys to go out and buy new stone, new cedar, new wood, let them buy everything they need, clean out the temple, repair it, remodel it, and get some guys in there to clean it out because we need to get back to who we're supposed to be. We need to get back to doing what we're supposed to do. So when I see this, I'm thinking, Josiah, this new king, is at least on the right track. Look at verse 8. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Basically, the priest comes out of the temple and says, Hey, guys, guys, believe it or not, I found the Bible in the temple of all places. I found, and they're probably looking at him. Shouldn't the priest know where the Bible is? I would think that would be our first question. So this is a high priest, the most uh, spiritual man in the place, and he comes out shocked because he's found the first five books of Moses in the Bible. 
So when I think of this, it shows us how long it's been since they cleaned out the temple, number one. But greater than that, I think it shows us how far their hearts had drifted from God. If you keep reading in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you're going to see kingdom after kingdom who were doing things their way instead of God's way. And I see this priest as one of those guys. He's no different. He comes out and he's shocked that he has found the Bible in the temple of all places. Just imagine finding a Bible in a temple, in a church. Anyway, verse 9, it goes on. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. So the work's underway. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read read from it in the presence of the king. When the king, Josiah, heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robe. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's attendant. I probably just butchered all those names, but you get my drift. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for his people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there uh, concerning us. So Josiah, when he hears this, is deeply convicted, no doubt about it. They start reading the five books of Moses that he wrote. The king is blown away because these are the words of God, given for God's people and the people that Josiah is king over now, and this is the first time he's hearing these words read. So he tears his clothes uh, out of brokenness, humility, I believe out of uh, mourning because uh, what he's thinking in his mind right now And he says, go and find someone to tell us what this book means because I know we're not doing what this book says to do. Again, he was deeply convicted after hearing the word of God. And they go and find a prophetess who explains everything. But look at chapter 23, verse 1. It says, then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest, He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. So he reads the whole Bible, the whole five books of Moses to the crowd. It says in verse 3, The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart, all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So when the congregation, when the whole group heard the Word of God read, they all got convicted. They all started focusing on God's Word. So we've got this incredible little story. An incredible little story about a king who's elected king when he's only eight years old. Later on, his first order of business is he realized that he's not running things right. He's running the kingdom amok because there's more to it than what he realized And they've got to go clean up the temple and figure out this little thing called religion. Um, Then lo and behold, the priest finds the Bible in, of all places, the temple. He gives it to the secretary. The secretary takes it to the king and says, let me tell you how the uh, cleanup project is going. Tells him what the money's been spent for, what the workers are doing, what the administration is doing. And then he says, and by the way, a priest found a book. Shall I read it? The king says, yes, read it. Well, as I said, it blew the king away. 
And then the king, I'll paraphrase this, but he says, we've got to get back to that book. We've got to get back to living by this book. I think that's paramount. I think that is huge, and I think that's for us today as God's church, not just Victory Church, but God's church worldwide. It boggles my mind that these people, God's people, the Israelites, had lost the book. They had lost the Bible. It boggles my mind how long and for how many years they had lost the Bible. Scholars actually believe that it could have been up to 200 years since that book had been read, since that book had been listened to or obeyed in the temple. When I hear that, I think that's kind of crazy. Amen? I'm wondering, what were they there for for those 200 years? Amen? It's absolutely crazy. So why is that important? You've probably been like me. I've had people ask me about my faith and say, hey, you kind of buy into this thing in the Bible. You kind of buy into what it's saying. How can you do that? Do you know how old that book is? How can you prove it to be, uh, be right? I think the same thing happened back th- that happened back then is happening today, that the people of God back then, and even the church today, we have kind of, so to speak, displaced our Bibles. We've lost our Bibles, and in a sense, we've lost our way. We've lost our way. It's been there the whole time. And if you know the decrees for the kings, they were supposed to have a copy of the book of the law with them. The priests and the Levites were supposed to be teaching and preaching it. And every seven years, the whole kingdom was supposed to sit down for a hearing of the word of God. Well, we're not going to do that to you today because some of you are already looking at your watch and saying, gosh, it's a quarter to 11. I've got a roast in the oven. I've got a golf game on the uh, tube. Our problem with our culture today, we can't get people to sit down for 10 minutes to read God's Word. So just like those people, I think we've lost our Bible, lost the Word of God under the clutter in our lives, under all the distractions in our lives. Just like those people, we've done the same thing. And God's Word, sadly to say, isn't evident evident and working in our lives because the Word of God's not evident in our lives. We blame God when He doesn't seem to be that genie that gives us everything we want when we want it. But the truth is we can't take Him at His Word if we don't understand and know His Word. And I realize the people we're talking about in the story and the people today have fallen for one of Satan's most favorite lies is that you can't trust the Bible. And that lie, if you know anything about the Bible, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember God had instructed Adam and Eve and Satan comes along and asks her a question. Did Eve, did God really, did he really say that? Come on, Eve, be your own God. Choose your own right and wrong. Don't buy into what this Bible is saying because you can't trust God's word. You can't trust it. My prayer for every one of us in here this morning is that we'll walk out of here saying, wow, I've never seen the value of this book like I've seen it today. And I've never been as hungry for God's word as I am today. That's my prayer. Because if we could get that right, then everything else will fall in place. If we could get that spiritual hunger deep in our hearts where we go to it first before anything else, then God can do what only God can do. Amen? But he's waiting for you and I to do our part. The Bible isn't just explaining a simple game of checkers. The Bible is explaining some pretty difficult topics. I mean, the creation of the universe, the origin of the universe, the origin of the earth, the origin of mankind. And it talks about a creator God that has revealed himself to us as mankind. The Bible wants to tackle things for our lives like our purpose and God's plan for our life, your finances, your sexuality, your morality, your marriage, your divorce, raising kids, and the list goes on and on. It's endless. 
But it doesn't even stop there. He wants to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Do you realize over 300 Bible prophecies have been fulfilled? And the authors of the Bible wrote about some pretty complex stuff about a creator having a relationship with his creation. The Bible writings took 1,500 years, 40-some authors, 66 books, and none of them stepped on each other's toes. That's pretty amazing. None of them denied who this God is. All of them are writing one single uniform story about an invisible God who has made and is trying to make himself visible in the person of Jesus Christ. I know I said a lot of words real quick there, but what I just said would have been impossible for anyone else but God. God defied the odds and made this happen, and it was only because of God and who He is that everything could come together like it has. Oh, people will still argue that it hasn't. They'll still argue that it's not true. But I believe under the conviction of God, I know without a doubt, I know that I know that I know that it's true. So over the centuries, this book has been burned. It's been banned from people hearing it, seeing it, reading it. And over the course of some 3,000 years, that book is still the most widely circulated, the most widely read, and the most widely copied book in the entire world. The bestseller. Amen? And I believe it always will be. Uh, years ago, my father-in-law, Cheryl's dad, Richard, and a good friend of his uh, would go out into the Mojave Desert, and uh, his good friend out in California... Uh, worked for the uh, United States Air Force in the secret classified information uh, department called Lockheed. So he had special access to certain places. They go out to the Mojave Desert and dig up crashed airplane parts. Cheryl's dad has one of the largest collections of special aircraft artifacts uh, uh, above just about anybody else from some of the most famous military airplanes that ever flew. One of his favorite digs is on the Valkyrie airplane. Anybody ever heard of that bomber? There were only two XB-70 Valkyrie bombers built. They were the highest flying, the fastest flying, the heaviest bombers ever built. The Valkyrie II crashed in the Mojave Desert about 45 years ago. Um, crashed in the Mojave Desert 45 years ago. The Air Force immediately swept in and cleaned up as much stuff as they possibly could because there was a lot of secret technology uh, about that plane they didn't want anyone else to have. But plane number one, Fully intact is now in the Airplane Museum over in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and documentation of these pieces uh, from the Valkyrie, the crashed Valkyrie, are some of the most sought after by collectors in all the world. But documented pieces of that crashed airplane, uh, the more proof you have, the more it proves its providence, the more it proves its value. But Cheryl's dad and I went out to the Airplane Museum in uh, Dayton, Ohio one day, and he took with him a briefcase and he had a piece of the uh, crashed Valkyrie in it. It was about a six-inch by six-inch piece of steel with a black stripe across and some letters on it. And we walked into that room where the Valkyrie is, and it seemed like it's a football field long. I mean, the nose of it is touching one end of the wall and the tail's touching the other. I don't know how they got it in there. But he pulls out this piece of uh, wreckage, and he's holding it up, and we're going all over that plane. He wanted to find out what part of the plane it came from. All of a sudden, the museum curator sees him carrying his piece around and about has a heart attack, comes running over to us. I thought we were going to get locked up. He says, you can't take pieces off this plane. <laughs> Richard says, we're not. He explained the whole thing. Uh, we didn't get locked up. He took some pictures to verify. We actually found where it came from. It came up near the landing gear uh, in the front. 
But documentation like this quadruples the price. It quadruples the price of that wreckage. This one piece that was only six inch by six inch with the right documentation, pictures, and all the information, he said uh, could bring $2,000 to $3,000 just for that little piece. It was that valuable. I'm only saying all this to make a point. Keep this in mind as we go forward with some facts that prove the Bible is true. Uh, The first fact, if you're taking notes, is it's textually accurate. The Bible is a text that you can count on. The Bible is a text that's absolutely accurate. Joshua McDowell wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's probably one of the best books out there if you're questioning Christianity. But I want to show you a chart. This isn't a biblical chart. It's not a chart that pastors use. This is a chart that literary critics use to validate a writing, whether it's reliable or not. This chart I want to put up on the screen, you'll recognize, if you can read that print, you'll recognize some of those names. And just to put your mind at ease, I don't have most of these books at home on my coffee table. Amen? I'll say I don't. But I want to bring out some facts on this chart that help prove the Bible is even more true than you probably ever imagined. Homer, number one, wrote the Iliad Odyssey in 800 B.C. The earliest copies we have are from 400 B.C., which means there was a time gap or a time span of 400 years from the time he wrote it to the time they got the first copy. And there were 643 copies made during that 400-year time period. So this is considered one of the most accurate literary texts from the ancient world um, because of the 400 years, its time frame, and from the 643 copies that were made. Jump down to the next one. There's Plato. He wrote in 400 B.C. The earliest copies we have are from 900 A.D., which means there's a time gap of 1,200 years from when he wrote it and when it was copied. And there are only seven copies, believe it or not, there are only seven copies of Plato. And as many of you know, if you've been to college, they still require, most of them require you to read some of Plato's writings. It's still considered one of the most influential books of Western philosophy. But I'll say this, nobody ever questions Plato Nobody ever says, well, Plato didn't exist. He, doesn't write, he didn't write that stuff. But there are a lot of people that are questioning the Bible, say it doesn't exist. Uh, uh, they didn't write that stuff. We're not picking on the little ones today, and I'm not going to go through all those. I'm picking on the top two, and I'm going to drop to the bottom. We're picking on the big ones that scholars and universities say are accurate and trustworthy. But drop down to the New Testament at the bottom. This should blow you away. And I know it's like a history lesson this morning, but you need to know some of these facts this morning to get a grasp on how true this word is. We get to the New Testament written in 50 to 90 A.D. The earliest copies were from about 130 A.D. A gap span of about 30 years, 30, 40 years. And look at this, 24,000 copies. 24,000 copies. So with that said, compare it to this trustworthy, unquestionable document, the Iliad Odyssey written by Homer, with 643 copies under a 400-year time span of when it was written and copied. To me, that makes the Bible unquestionable. The Bible totally unquestionable, yet a lot of the world still objects to it. Remember what I said about time span. It's critical. It's critical in determining the truth of a manuscript. The further away from the original, the more chance for error. Look at the first New Testament copy, transcript. Had only a 30-year time span compared to the 400-year of the Iliad Odyssey. Yet many people today would believe the Iliad Odyssey as gospel over the gospel, over the Bible. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. 
But I thought about that Valkyrie plane with all of its documentation, how it wrecked, crashed 45 plus years ago in the Mojave Desert. It was documented. Um, I think about all the photos that were taken. Richard took a bunch of them when they were at the dig site where it was recovered from. Uh, and spending that day at the uh, museum in Daytona, Daytona, Dayton, California, Dayton, Ohio. I'll get it right. I'm in the right place <laughs> in Dayton, Ohio. And taking that piece of the plane and comparing it next to the only other existing Valkyrie plane on the planet, taking pictures, making all that documentation, I think that's a whole lot of proof. But if you look at the Bible, there's even more proof. I look at a book that has 24,000 copies written 30 years from the original. And I found this out in our studies. There were 32,000 times that that book had been quoted before 300 A.D. by outside biblical sources. They were Roman philosophers. They weren't even believers, but they were quoting actual quotes from the New Testament. What I am saying is there is so much evidence that if you're denying the Bible, you're denying truth. I mean, think about Mark, writing the Gospel of Mark, writing about Jesus just 25 years after his death. Think about those writings. Wouldn't you think all those people that were there, and there were thousands of witnesses, wouldn't you think all of those people would attest to the validity of Mark's writing and to the validity of all the other gospel writers? I would think for sure. Just like if somebody wrote a book about you 25 years after your death, they'd have to be pretty accurate because there's still going to be some people there that are going to say, hey, wait a minute, that is wrong. I knew him. I lived with him. I knew them. They weren't like that at all. They would be living proof. But think of Mark writing about Jesus 25 years after his death, feeding the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, walking on the water, calming the storms, dying a brutal death on a cross in front of the whole town baffling everybody's mind uh, by his resurrection from the dead, especially the Roman soldiers that tried to hold him captive. And there wasn't one shred of evidence to go against any of that. Uh, no one is writing how false it was. And you know why? You can't write about how false something is when the whole town saw it. Amen? You can't write about how false something is. You can't make something up when the entire town witnessed it. So with that said, this book is accurate. This book is, this Bible is accurate. If you know anything about the Old Testament, it's amazing. We're not going to leave it out today. It's amazing. There were Jewish men that devoted their whole lives to the copying of the Word of God. And you really have to understand their standards to realize how precious this Bible is that we get to hold in our hands today. You know, they weren't for decades able to get in training. They weren't able to get near an original manuscript. They weren't allowed to till they got ready. And when they did, they copied it letter for letter, space for space. Every parchment had to be exactly the same size, exact same columns in each, uh, on each page, with the exact same letters on each line and the exact same amount of spaces. So on every page, they knew how many T's were on that page, how many W's, how many S's were on that page. Every letter had to be checked. And if you got finished and there were supposed to be 152 T's on that page and you only had 151, they scrapped it. They burn it, and you start it all over. They could measure every word precisely by the original, and if you took the original and put it underneath the copy and laid it on top of it and could see through it, it was identical, totally identical. And think about this. This was way before Xerox, amen? It was identical. These guys took their job so seriously 
that before they would begin riding, they would go in and they would wash themselves completely and put on clean clothes. And every time they got to the word Yahweh, which is the name of God, they made sure they changed pens, that they didn't have a pen that had been freshly dipped in ink because they weren't there going to smudge the name of God. I'm thinking, how respectful is that? How honoring is that? How careful and serious is that? So you might say, well, how do we know the Bible is accurate? I say we know it's accurate because it's God's Word preserved by God. It's God's Word preserved by God Himself. Why are we so surprised? Why are we so surprised that God would protect in His Word down through the eons of time, especially when it's the primary means of Him revealing Himself to us, telling us who He is, what He does, and what He wants us to do? I'd say that's a pretty good reason for Him to preserve and protect His Word. Matthew 5, 18. It says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law or the word of God until everything is accomplished. He's saying this old earth is going to pass away long before my word passes away because I still have a plan and a purpose for my word. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, when I think of those biblical writers from start to finish, every biblical writer wrote what they wrote under the inspiration and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So this book is not just ink written on pages with a nice cover on it. This book is a supernatural book of Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And we take it for granted. This book is a supernatural book. The Bible says these words are living words. These words in this book are what we need for our marriages. They're what we need for our anger issues. They're what we need for our doubts. Uh, This is what we need for our hopes. This is what we need to be content, to find peace in our lives what you need for your finances, what you need for your business, how to get along with your neighbors, how to get along with your enemies. And it gives us the answer to life, but it doesn't stop there. It gives us the answer to eternal life. This is God's word to you and me this morning. It's backed up scientifically, historically, and archaeologically. I don't have time to go into all those today, and you're probably glad I don't. But they've all been proven. And I think an easy way to look at it is God's Word proves itself by itself. So do we have any idea this morning what privilege we have to hold this Bible in our hands? This is the actual living Word of God. It's supernatural. It's preserved by the Creator Himself and been passed down to you and me. Wow, that's awesome. He's given it down to you and I. He's protected it and preserved it over the years. But what are we doing with it? Are we like those priests in the temple that didn't even know they had lost it? It was unopened and forgotten about for a long, long time. Let me ask you this morning, is the Word of God hidden under the clutter in your life today? Is the Word of God that's in your homes and in your heart hidden under the clutter and all the distractions in our lives? And are we just as guilty at forgetting the book as they were? You know, we like to point the fingers. We read a story about somebody else. But a lot of times, if you're like me, I might point a finger at them and I've got all of mine pointing back at me because I'm just as guilty. 
Most of us have more than one Bible in our homes. Yet a lot of times we never pick it up, never bother to open it up. That's why when the storms of life hit, we sink instead of standing. We sink because we don't have the Word. You want power in your life? Pick up the Word of God. You want peace in your life? Pick up the Word of God. You want contentment in your life? Pick up the Word of God. You want direction for your life? Pick up the Word of God. You want healing for your life? Pick up the Word of God. It's all right here in this book. But it's still up to you and I. God, God, I just have tried to prove what God did so that I could hold this Bible today and preach from it. I hope when you walk out of here, you'll say like I said earlier, I've never seen the value of the book like I see it today. And I've never had a spiritual hunger in my heart like I have today. That's my prayer. That's our prayer every Thursday night when we meet as a prayer group, that God would fill this place with hungry followers. That we're hungry for the Word of God, the truth of God, a relationship with God. So this morning, that's my prayer, is that you would get hungrier for the Word of God that you would get hungrier for His presence in your life, that you would fall in love with Jesus all over again, fall in love with a God that has never stopped loving you or ever will. No matter how far you've walked away or ran away from God, God is still right there. He's not the one that's lost. You got lost, but He's right there to take you back home. Amen? So could you stand to your feet this morning? We serve a God that loves us that much, that loves us that much, that gave everything for you and me this morning. I know today's been like a history lesson, but I pray it's backed up some facts that we, the world, counts on a lot of these other documents to be real. They don't hold a candle to God's Word. So this morning, God, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come before you. Father God, I thank you that you're a loving Father. I thank you, Father, that you went through so much for us to preserve your Word and your truth to us. And I pray that you would give each and every one of us here today a spiritual hunger for your word like we've never had before in our lives. I pray that that spiritual hunger would rise up within our hearts. Help us to see your word as more accurate and more trustworthy than any other book ever written. And help us to see that the answers we need for every issue we face today, we faced yesterday, or we'll face tomorrow is to be found in your word. Father, I pray that every heart today is just saying, God, I need more of your word working in my life. I need more of your presence working in my life. And I surrender it over to you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And if you believe that this morning, will you say amen with me? Amen. Go out, pick up your Bibles, open it up, and share it with somebody. God bless you all.